Father, we need your help now to believe the way you want us to believe about the life you've called us to live. Because we tend to believe the wrong things. We tend to interpret our lives and the things that happen to us and are happening inside us. We, we tend to interpret them wrongly. And so we need you, by your spirit, through your word, to come put some glasses on our face so that we can see what you see about the life you've called us to live. Would you do this? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, a Sunday school teacher asked his class of children, how many of you are willing to die for Christ? Every one of the children, of course, dutifully raised their hands. In most Sunday school classes, uh, the question, how many of you are willing to die for Jesus, is mostly an academic question. But for the children in Zion Church last Sunday morning in Sri Lanka, it meant a whole lot more. Here's an eyewitness report. During Sunday school a week ago, today, last Sunday, the teacher, a local seminary student in Colombo, Sri Lanka, talked to the children about the importance of repentance and receiving Jesus as Lord. He challenged the children, asking them if they would be willing to even die for Jesus. All of the children responded by putting their hands up, and, and then they signaled their fresh dedication to Jesus by lighting a symbolic candle. For many of those children, it would be their final act of worship. Because a few minutes later, as the children walked from Sunday school class through the courtyard to the sanctuary for Zion Church's main worship service, they passed by, witnesses say, a group of the church leaders talking to a man who had shown up and was asking them what time the service would be. They observed that he was sweating profusely. One of the pastors asked him if he would like to remove his backpack. And then the explosion. Sixteen of those children died, along with ten others at Zion Church, and a hundred more were injured. Uh, Zion is a charismatic congregation in Sri Lanka, but there are also two Catholic churches that were attacked by suicide bombers that morning, along with three hotels. The death toll currently stands at 253. Now that seems like a scene out of a movie or some sort of action television show that, that we like to watch. But that just happened last Sunday morning on the other side of the globe. So when Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
Well, I read that and I say, well, well, that story about what happened in Sri Lanka last week, that kind of fiery trial is strange to me. I live on Signal Mountain. I worship at Mountain Fellowship. Persecution like that would surprise me. It's just not how we here on Signal Mountain typically share Christ's suffering. You know, I, even before, as I was considering preaching this sermon series on First Peter, I wondered to myself, uh, so is a church on Signal Mountain in which Christians enjoy the luxury of freedom of religion, wealth and excellent health care, homes, cars, food, clean water, you know, folks who live in the Bible Belt, where the likelihood of being persecuted for Christ is honestly very, very low, would a letter about suffering for being a Christian really be the best choice for our church? Well, obviously, since I have been preaching it, I think it is a good choice for us, even if we are not shedding our blood for the name of Jesus. So when Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, he knows that whenever you do suffer, whatever you suffer, you will automatically try to figure out what's going on and why it's going on. So, in this letter, Peter has been trying to make us believe differently about all of our suffering as followers of Jesus. Even if it's not being blown up by a terrorist. Rather than be surprised by our suffering, Peter wants us to believe something about our suffering. And so this morning... I want to share with you, as your brother, as your pastor, I want to share something with you that I, I believe will help you get what Peter is doing in this letter. It's helped me get what Peter is doing this, in this letter. And I think it will help give you a pair of glasses that will help you see all of your suffering differently. So a few years ago, I, I heard these lectures by a seminary professor named Dr. Lane Tipton. And he said that there were two templates or two patterns, or maybe we should say two journeys that the apostles used in their teaching to help Christians think about what it means to live as followers of Jesus. And those two journeys are the journey of Israel in the Old Testament, Exodus, wilderness, promised land, and then the journey of Jesus in the New Testament, suffering and then glory. Those two patterns, the journey of Israel in the New Testament, uh, the exodus, the wilderness, and the promised land are a template of the Christian life. We're already saved, but we're not yet home. We're already rescued from our slavery to sin and redeemed by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus, but we've not yet entered into the rest of our promised land, the new heaven and the new earth. So we're living in wilderness time. This period of time between Jesus' first coming as the true and better Moses, who rescued us from slavery to sin, and his second coming as the true and better Joshua, who will 
conquer his enemies, and take us into his promised rest. For now, we are, as Peter calls us, God's sojourners and exiles. So this period of wilderness time is, like theirs was, marked by suffering, simply because we're not home yet. So that's the first journey. The second journey is the journey of Jesus in the New Testament. It's another template for the Christian life. And the apostles continued to point to this cross-shaped theme of sharing in Christ's sufferings. And they said that there were two stages to Jesus' ministry, his suffering and then his glory. Jesus suffered by being born as a man into a poor family, by being made subject to the law of God, by suffering the miseries of this life, by suffering the wrath of God for our sin and the curse of death on the cross, and by being buried and remaining under the power of death for a time. Jesus suffered. But Jesus was glorified by his rising from the dead in a glorious, new, imperishable body. His going up into heaven, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father and subduing every power and authority under him. And he will be glorified in his coming again to judge the world and to take his people home to a new heaven and a new earth on the last day. The apostles taught that since we are united to Christ by faith in Christ, we should expect our lives to take that same suffering then glory pattern. Paul said in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So as those who are united with Christ, we share in his suffering now in this present age, while we look forward to the day when we will share in the fullness of his glory then in the age to come. So, there are two stages to our lives as disciples of Christ. Wilderness, then rest. Suffering, then glory. And Now, here's how, here's how this changed the definition of Christian suffering for me. Dr. Tipton said, Tipton said this. He said, the suffering that you experience now is best understood most basically as a lack of the glory that is to come. The suffering you experience now is a lack of the glory that is to come. The fact that we don't have that glory that's coming is suffering. He says, you have not yet been brought into the glory of the new heaven and the new earth and all that it holds for you in a glorious, sinless, resurrected body. So, suffering is not something that you should feel guilty for not experiencing. You do experience it. You experience it by default because you are not yet brought to glory. And so, when I thought about those children and others shedding their blood for Jesus last Sunday, I, I, I did think to myself, as I often do in those cases, yeah, I don't really suffer for Jesus like that. But the point is, 
because I'm not home yet, I suffer. There, there may be a range of intensity of suffering, but all that we're experiencing um, as suffering now in this present age is legitimate suffering. We don't, we don't tell someone, I hope, we don't tell someone, look, what you're going through is nothing compared to what so-and-so's going through. You wouldn't do that because this person's suffering is, is suffering to this person. So, Christian suffering includes everything that comes with living in the wilderness while you're waiting on the promised land. It includes everything that it means to live in a broken world, in a broken body, with other broken people, which causes broken relationships and broken societies and broken communities and broken creation. Look, we suffer physically because death is already at work in our bodies through sickness, disease, and aging. We're not yet in our glorified resurrection bodies, so that's suffering. Everything that you experience that is not what you will experience in your glorified resurrection body is suffering. We suffer relationally because we're not yet completely free from the power of sin, from the power of our me-first hearts. We are not now perfectly loving God and loving others. Work relationships can be hard. Friendships can be hard, even the best of them. I'm about to get an amen on this one. Marriage is hard. Can I have my amen? Marriage is hard. Even the best of them. Because we're still me-first-hearted people inside. Parenting is hard. Amen. (laughs) Woo! Preach! But especially because, as those who have the Holy Spirit living in us, we want our relationships to be whole. We want our marriages to work well. Not just work well, but flourish. We want our parenting to be sweet. We want our work relationships to work. Because it's in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we wrestle against all the corruption of sin in our relationships. I once uh, heard Johnny Erickson Tata, you know Johnny, is uh, known for her story of she's been 50 plus years uh, in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. I once heard her say this uh, when I was hearing her speak at a church one time. She said, the thing I'm most looking forward to in the new heavens and earth is not getting out of this chair but sin getting out of me. What makes somebody think that way? And yes, we suffer socially because we are strangers and exiles in our culture. We suffer social awkwardness to mild social persecution, to being uh, left out and looked over, to outright mocking, verbal abuse, or or being called out on social media, um, to the kind of suffering that 
the Christians in Sri Lanka experienced last week, all the way to that extreme. And all of this makes sense of what Peter said at the beginning of his letter when he said, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The people who received this letter were experiencing a variety of trials. What I'm trying to do, let me just stop right here and say, what I'm trying to do is help us not to read Peter's letter and think this only applies to people in Sri Lanka who get blown up for being Christians. That's not, that's not the case. What Peter is saying applies to all of the suffering that you experience because you're still in the wilderness. I want to encourage you that all of the relational struggles you're having, all of the physical struggles you're having, all of the social um, overlooking and being left out that you students are experiencing at school because you spoke up for Jesus one day, and now everybody, or you don't, Hold to, you hold to different morals than the rest of your school, and so you're weird or goody-two-shoes. All of that suffering matters. It's a, a variety of trials Peter is talking about. Wide range of intensity. But, as we've been seeing, all of these are ways that we suffer because we're putting Jesus on display to the world by the way we live in the world. All of this suffering as Christians is because we're trying to do what we're made to do, and that is put Jesus on display in the world. So, in his letter, Peter included the suffering of living a pure life in a pagan culture like Jesus. The suffering of submitting like Jesus to government authorities. The, the suffering of submitting like Jesus to horrible bosses. The suffering of submitting like Jesus in your marriage. The suffering of dying to yourself so that you can love your brothers and sisters in Christ like Jesus did. The suffering of living your life on earth only for the will of God and not yourself like Jesus did. The suffering of, like Jesus, swimming against the flow of your generation and having then think you're strange. The suffering of living with the last day's mindset that focuses on prayer and hospitality and service like Jesus did. Some of these may involve shedding your blood, but they don't have to. So don't dismiss your suffering as a Christian because you haven't yet shed your blood for Jesus. Jesus said that the entire life of the Christian is one of dying to yourself, taking up your cross, following him by laying down your life for the sake of others in the places he's put you. So with all that background, when Peter tells his readers to rejoice in the midst of fiery trials in chapter 4, he's echoing what he said at the beginning of the letter. We read it as our assurance of pardon this morning when he said in chapter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's coming back to that whole fiery trial, trying you as gold theme that was in chapter 1. 
I don't know if you've heard of Amy Carmichael. Anybody know who she is? Wow. Look her up, read her stuff. She was an Irish missionary for 55 years in India. And she tells a story that illustrates, I think, what, what Peter's saying here. She said, one day we took the children to see a goldsmith refine gold after the ancient manner of the East. He was sitting beside his little charcoal fire, and then she says, the gold or silversmith never leaves his crucible once it is on fire. That's instructive to us. But in the red glow lay a common curved roof tile, and another tile covered it like a lid. This was the crucible that would hold the gold. The fire does its appointed work on the gold, pulling out the impurities, and the goldsmith lifts the gold out with a pair of tongs, lets it cool, rubs it between his fingers, and if not satisfied, puts it back again for another round. This time, he blows the fire hotter than it was before, and each time he puts the gold into the crucible, the heat of the fire is increased. He says, listen to this, it could not bear it so hot at first. But it can bear it now. What would have destroyed it then helps it now. So Amy asked him, how do you know when the gold is purified? And he answered, when I can see my face in it, then it is pure. When I can see my face in it, then it is pure. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The refining fire of your suffering removes the dross, which is everything that isn't like Jesus, and leaves that which is like Jesus to shine in you. Your suffering has a purpose. It's not like that dumb Tylenol commercial years ago that said, pain is a waste of time. That's not a Christian way of thinking about your pain. Your pain has a purpose. It becomes a powerful tool in the hands of the refiner so that he can see his image reflected in you. Suffering for Jesus, suffering for putting Jesus on display actually gives you another opportunity to put Jesus on display. And so... Quickly, listen to these ways that Peter says in chapter 4 that these fiery trials are making us reflect the life and love of Jesus. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's a a rejoicing now and a rejoicing then. He's saying we will put Jesus on display when we rejoice to suffer now for glory later, like Jesus did. So when you're willing to to suffer what you're suffering now, because you know that there will be glory later, and the rejoicing will be even greater, you look like Jesus, because that's what he did. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he's seated in glory. Verse 14, Peter says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests 
upon you. We will put Jesus on display when we enjoy the blessing of the Spirit's power like Jesus did. Peter is uh, alluding to Isaiah eleven twelve, in which Isaiah prophesied this, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, upon the Messiah. And so then Peter is saying, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you when you suffer. One of my favorite uh, verses lately, and I've, I had the privilege of sharing this with Mike and Marianne several times. It's Colossians 1.11, where Paul said that we are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, the power and glorious might of the Holy Spirit. What are we strengthened for? For healing, for a great marriage, for financial freedom, for... Nope. All that glorious might just so that it's for all endurance and patience with joy. So take heart, friends. If you are simply enduring your suffering for Christ, then that means the spirit of glory has rested on you because you couldn't do it without it. So we put Jesus on display when we enjoy the blessing of the Spirit's power and glory. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We will put Jesus on display when we obey like Jesus did. Not by, not by suffering for breaking the law of God, but, but suffering for keeping the law of God. So he, he mentions these different ways of breaking God's law. Murderer, thief, evildoer. That might tell you something about the people that Peter's writing to, by the way. That's a rough church. Um, so you're not going to reflect the image of Jesus in your suffering if you're suffering for things that you did that are sinful. <laughs> and he goes to the extreme. Murder, stealing, and all kinds of other evil doing. But then he mentions one that most of us may struggle with, meddling. It's the only time that word's used in the New Testament, and what it basically means is sticking your nose in other people's business. Sounds like Facebook to me. <laughs> right? So if you get persecuted because you're a jerk, that doesn't count. But if you're persecuted for loving people, that counts. And you look like Jesus. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We will put Jesus on display in our suffering when we are not ashamed of, of God but glorify God like Jesus did. And who better to, to tell us this than Peter, who was so ashamed of being a follower of Jesus that he caved in front of a little servant girl by the fire that night and denied Jesus three times. If we suffer 
for putting Jesus on display, and we are not ashamed of him, but give him praise, we will look like Jesus and reflect him. And then finally, we will put Jesus on display when we have compassion for sinners like Jesus did. Verses 17 and 18 are weird. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment here, he's he's not talking about uh, judgment in the house of God as condemnation. He's talking about that purifying of God's people through suffering. So if God's people need to be purified by suffering, then, yes, the judgment for those who do not obey the gospel is even more severe. Think about this. Our suffering is different than the suffering of those who don't know Jesus. Because you may say, well, everybody suffers all these kinds of things you've been talking about. But no, our suffering is different than those who don't know Jesus. Ours cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us. But theirs cannot be compared to the judgment that awaits them. Dr. Tipton explained this well. He said, how do do unbelievers suffer? They suffer alone, apart from Christ. They suffer unto greater suffering. They suffer unto death. They suffer unto condemnation. They suffer unto ultimate hopelessness. The sufferings of this life, he says, for unbelievers cannot be compared to the infinite suffering that awaits them when all of God's presence is removed and they know him only in wrath and condemnation. Friends, this should break our hearts. This should break our hearts for our neighbors who don't know Christ. This should break our hearts for that person on Facebook or Twitter that makes us angry because they mock Christians. This should break our hearts for people who are just where we once were and would be apart from God's sovereign grace. So rather than hate or retaliate against those who do not know Jesus, Peter is saying we should have his compassion for them as we consider the suffering that awaits them. So, even in the midst of our suffering, we're already sharing in Christ's glory because the refining fire of suffering is causing him to shine in us. And so how does Peter sum this all up? What's what's the takeaway this morning? He says in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, God has a purpose for your Christian suffering, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Whatever suffering you're experiencing as a follower of Jesus, whatever level of intensity it holds for you right now, Peter says, entrust your soul to your faithful creator and continue to put Jesus on display. 
simple as that, right? And I want to encourage you that the heart of your faithful creator is worth trusting. The one you're entrusting your soul to as you suffer loves you deeply and is good. A couple of days ago, I visited Joe and Jada Smith as baby Grace was in surgery and they were waiting to hear the news about how bad things were. And Jada, sweet, precious Jada, was in tears and she just said, oh, oh, my heart hurts. I hurt because she's hurting. I hurt when my baby hurts. It kills me to see her suffer this way. She said, and if I could, I would take her place. Friends, this table is proof that your faithful creator, the Lord Jesus, he sees your suffering and he hurts when you hurt. It did kill him so that you could become like him. He took your place so that you show his face to the world. Father, would you make us believe differently about our suffering? Would you help us to see it as you see it? And would you help us to trust your heart in the middle of it? When we can't trace your hand, help us to trust your heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.